Now, have you ever been telling a story and right in the middle of you telling your story, someone interjects and begins to tell their story? Yes, I've definitely done that. And uh, I've probably done that way too much. Uh, but what do you do in those moments, in those situations? Do you just kind of give up on it and let them tell their story or you know, let them tell their story and then you kind of continue on with yours later? But it's like, dude, your story just got right interrupted at the middle, like right at the climax usually, right? And uh, that's kind of what we're going to see today in our account that we're looking at. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, so you can open your Bibles there. Mark chapter 5, we'll be looking from verses 21 to the end of the chapter, and we're going to be looking at two people's stories. Uh, both people come to Jesus in desperate need of his help, and both receive power from Jesus that brings healing to them. But as we'll see, there's sort of this interjection that takes place where two healings sort of intersect, and we're going to see what takes place in that and how Jesus responds in that moment. I think it's going to tell us something about him. So Mark chapter 5, if you have your Bible open, we're going to start at verse 21, where it says this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So Jesus has been going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. He leaves one crowd to go and minister to another crowd. And interestingly, one side of the Sea of Galilee was largely a Jewish population. Whereas the other side, where Jesus just delivered a man in the Gerasenes, was uh, largely a Gentile population. And what I love about this is I kind of see the Sea of Galilee as what Ephesians 2 talks about, which is this dividing wall that separates. See, the Jews and the Gentiles at that time had great hostility towards each other. And so whole regions were dedicated to largely Jewish or largely Gentile. And what Jesus is doing is he's crossing over the Sea of Galilee, going back and forth. Because listen, for Jesus, there is no person or no people group that is outside of his reach. See, Jesus went to all people. He went to Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, religious and demonized. Jesus went to all people and he ministered to all people. And I really love that picture of the Sea of Galilee being that which kind of separated the people. And he's just crossing right over it, right? And so at this point, we see Jesus as he now makes his way back to the region of Galilee. He's at the peak of his ministry. And I mean this in the sense of his popularity. There is news going out about him in whole regions, both Jewish and Gentile regions, that Jesus is powerful. I mean, he just delivered the scariest dude ever from a whole legion of demons. And that man who was delivered that we looked at last week, and perhaps you uh, got a chance to listen to that message, maybe it stirred some questions in your heart. I wanted to circle back to that and say, if you have any questions mulling around in your heart about what was talked about last week, please reach out. We'd love to talk to you, uh, look at the word with you, and just encourage you. So, but that man who was demonized and was delivered by Jesus, he tries to go on the boat with Jesus to cross back over. He wants to hang out with Jesus. And he says, Jesus says to the man, no, I want you to go to your friends 
And I want you to tell all that the Lord has done for you. And so it says that he went throughout all the region of the the Decapolis, which is this region of 10 cities, kind of similar to the South Bay. And he begins to broadcast, proclaim throughout all of it, all that Jesus had done for him. And so the name of Jesus and his fame is spreading out throughout all these regions. And, you know, this comes to a point where we could just kind of take a real simple application, which is that we too should be a people that tell of the great things that the Lord has done for us, that we would proclaim that throughout whole regions. And listen, if the Lord hasn't done great things for you, perhaps it's one of two things. It's either you haven't asked him to do great things for you, or you're not thankful for the great things that he has done for you. See, if you really know Jesus, then you know that he has done great things. Amen? Amen. And if he's done great things, then that is something for us to tell about. And so Jesus, having just crossed the Sea of Galilee, is now back in this mostly Jewish region, and he's immediately met by another very large crowd. And this crowd was super eager to see Jesus. They were pressing in from every every direction, trying to receive something from him. And we read in verse 22, look with me, it says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And so out from the midst of this big crowd, there comes this man who falls down at the feet of Jesus. And this man, we can tell already, is in desperate need of Jesus' help. We know a few things about this man so far. We know his name is Jairus. We know his occupation. He's a ruler of the synagogues. And what this meant was that he cared for the daily affairs at the synagogue. He was responsible for the physical upkeep of the building. He was responsible for the spiritual services that would take place in the synagogue. And so he oversaw the work that happened there in the synagogue. And from these two things that we know about Jairus, we can kind of assume a few things. First, we know that he was Jewish. Second, we can assume that he was a noble man. He was well-respected in his community as a spiritual leader. He was the guy who was usually serving other people. He was the guy that was taking care of people's physical and emotional and spiritual needs, the one that would often meet with people and serve people. And here he is, fallen down, prostrate on the floor at the feet of Jesus. Verse 23 says, And Jairus implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. See, this is one of those moments in life, just as Ben shared during worship, where the wheels just come off. You know, if anyone here is a parent, you can sympathize with what Jairus is experiencing in this moment. This is one of those moments in life that no one wants to experience, and sadly, some people do. Perhaps you here this morning, and you know this pain all too well. See, this man's daughter is at the brink of death. She is sick and near the end of her life, and we read later in the text that she was only 12 years old. 
know, this is Jairus' little girl. She's dying. As a father, he is imploring Jesus to do something. Now listen, I, I have a seven-year-old daughter, and it only takes me one minute of imagination to know what implore means. I'll save you any dramatic preaching to kind of try to express to you what Jairus is feeling. I think you know what the man is feeling inside when he begs Jesus to keep his daughter alive because death is encroaching upon his little girl and death is an enemy. And death is an enemy that Jesus will one day destroy, but until then, there is a sting that is in death that can only be removed if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And there's something that we know as human beings that is so innately wrong with the death of a child. We say children are not supposed to die before their parents. We have that hardwired into us. Parents are not supposed to bury their children. And this is one of the things that we don't really have an answer for except to sing songs like we said, where God, I trust that you are good. God, I trust that you are sovereign, that you are loving, and that you are good. And I don't understand why my little girl has died, but Jesus, I trust you. You know, we don't have the right packaged answers for these kinds of moments in life, nor should we. We believe and trust in a father who happens to know quite well what it's like to have his child die. God is sympathetic towards us in those moments, and so Jairus is there down on his feet, and he's imploring Jesus by saying, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so Jairus knows something about Jesus. Whether he heard about it from others or, you know, he's seen how, so, how he'd touch somebody, maybe touch somebody on the eyes and they were blind, but then they could see. Or maybe he had heard Jesus come and teach in the synagogue that he ruled. Whatever it was, however it was that Jesus and Jairus knew of each other, Jairus believed that Jesus was the only one who could help him in this most fearful moment of his life. He has the faith that Jesus can lay hands on his daughter and heal this sweet little girl. And where does this kind of faith come from? You know, where do we get the faith in these moments? Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this is the kind of faith that Jairus has where he'd learned enough about the person and the work of Jesus that he could come to him and he's pretty sure that Jesus could help him in his knees and so in his need and so he's there at the feet of Jesus making his request and he says to Jesus come to my house my daughter is dying. Now if you didn't have the next part of the story in the Bible that you're holding, what would you think that Jesus does next? Like, it, like if you couldn't just look down right now and see verse 24, what would you think Jesus does next? 
And I think how you respond to that question will tell you a lot about how you view Jesus. So do you believe that Jesus is good? Do you believe that Jesus cares? Do you believe that Jesus is sympathetic towards suffering? Do you believe that he has power to heal and even raise the dead? And how you answer those questions will tell you a lot about how you view Jesus. And thankfully, we know the real Jesus from his word, and we can answer yes to all of those questions. He does care. He is good. He is sympathetic towards suffering, and he does sometimes heal. And he certainly raises the dead sometimes in this life, but certainly in the life to come. So look at what Jesus does next in verse 24. It says, and he went with him. I love those words. I love those words because it tells me that Jesus cares about those who are in pain. We know he cares because he went with him. See, You'll know that Jesus is good when he is with you. You'll know that he cares when he meets you at your request. And the best thing that you can have when you are suffering is God going with you. He went with him because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And God has promised to always be with his people. But think about the day that Jesus has just had. He'd already been on this side of the Sea of Galilee, and then he crosses over, uh, calms a storm, delivers a man from demons, gets driven away by an angry mob to come across to find another crowd that is just as needy, and all he's had is an interrupted nap. I mean, this is the moment when Jesus totally could have pulled the I-need-a-break card but he doesn't. He sees this man in his desperate need and he ministers to him, especially because Jairus is imploring Jesus to come. You know that God will always move with you. He will always go with you when you implore him to come. And so verse 24 in the second half tells us that the crowds go along with him. It says, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Have you guys ever been in a crowd so big that it's all pressed in against each other? Hopefully not recently. Um, but in high school, I used to go to these concerts. Uh, I was a little bit into the whole hardcore concert scene and I'd go in the mosh pits and stuff. But there would be these concerts. You guys could see it, right? Just like throwing my arms around. And uh, it was pretty awesome. But I'd go to these one concerts and I always loved being a head taller than everybody else, especially at those hardcore shows because everyone's head just smelled. It's like, guys, take showers. And, uh, and so I was able to kind of get a breath of fresh air amidst these huge crowds that were all pressed into each other. But if you've ever been in a group like that where it's like the only way to move, the only way to take a step is if the whole group moves. You know what I'm talking about? That's the kind of idea when it says that this crowd thronged about Jesus. The word thronged actually means to be without air, to be suffocating. So this crowd is like suffocating around Jesus, literally thronging about him, wanting to be in Jesus's presence. Now, obviously in our times, we're not in crowds of that kind 
really anymore, but I pray for God to bring a revival that people would throng about Jesus. People would be so pressed toward Jesus in faith. And if you read histories of revival, you'll come to see that on the heels of really difficult and trying and depressing times, God often will pour out his spirit and you'll see crowds of this kind. I'm praying for that. So you have this huge crowd slowly, painfully making their way toward this 12-year-old girl. Let's read now verse 25 to 29. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Okay, so hold on now. uh, Jesus is making his way to Jairus' house to heal this 12-year-old girl who is about to die at any moment. And this crowd is moving painfully slow. I mean, it can't take more than an inch step to move forward. And imagine how Jairus is feeling as the people are thronging about his only chance at his daughter's survival. And then in the midst of this crowd that's pressing in upon Jesus, there comes this woman who has this flow of blood which causes Jesus to stop. And without having to go into any great detail about this woman's condition, we know that this woman had a terrible health condition, which was that basically she had her menstrual period continuously for 12 years. And only half the crowd here today can sympathize with that. And so here's this woman, and she's been bleeding for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. And she somehow makes her way through the crowd, probably crawling through it on her hands and on her feet. And she makes her way to Jesus. And when she gets to Jesus, she's thinking in her mind, if only I could touch the hem of his garment, then I will be healed. And she reaches out, grabbing the hem of his garments. And while in her mind, she's saying that if I can just touch his garment, I will be made healed. And she does. She is healed in that moment. It said that she had heard reports of Jesus healing people, and now she becomes another testimony herself of one that Jesus had healed. I mean, this work of Jesus is spreading like wildfire. And we know a few things about this woman which will help shed light upon the situation. We know that she had this blood flow, this continuous menstrual period. And Leviticus 15, 19 through 20 tells us that this issue of blood would have made her ceremonially unclean. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Jews had certain purification rituals concerning things like food, dead bodies, various diseases, uh, blood, or any kind of bodily discharge. And God was doing two main things in Leviticus when he was giving these laws. One, he was actually giving some pretty good health tips to the Jewish people. But secondly, he was showing himself to be holy and that those who worshiped him also ought to be holy. 
And so contact with blood for a Jewish person was a thing to avoid. And remember, this was a ceremonial law for the Jews, which does not continue or apply today in Christ. However, because of this continual blood flow, this woman became someone to avoid. People didn't want to be around her because they didn't want to have the hassle of becoming ceremonially unclean. What does that mean? That just means that you can't then go into worship. You can't be among God's people worshiping God if you're ceremonially unclean. And so think quarantine, right? Nobody wants to get exposed and then not be able to go to church, right? And that's exactly what this woman, she had lived in this constant state of isolation because of her ceremonially uncleanness. And adding to that pressure of being cut off essentially from society and from the public worship, verse 26 tells us that she went from doctor to doctor and bills were piling up because nobody could find a cure for her. And so she has no friends, she has no money, she has no help at all, and she's only getting worse year after year. And so this woman, in this discreet kind of way, presses through the crowd to do whatever she can to touch the hem of Jesus. And she gets to him. She reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. Now, Jesus, being a rabbi, a teacher, would have been wearing the customary robe of that day for a rabbi. It was a ceremonial robe, which was also prescribed in the Old Testament that the teacher would wear. And this robe would have had these corners, and upon those corners would have had four tassels of blue cord. And Jesus would have worn this robe that would have hung down low at his feet. And so this woman comes and grabs that hem, grabs that tassel upon Jesus' garments. And verse 29 says, immediately the flow of blood dried up. Her bleeding stopped. Just like that, she's healed. Finally, for the first time in 12 years, this bleeding stops and she's no longer ceremonially unclean. You know, she could have easily made Jesus unclean by touching him, but Jesus made her clean. And she's healed and she knows it. Verse 29 says, she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. So for the first time, time in 12 years this woman felt within her what it was like to not bleed imagine the overwhelming emotions that this woman felt as she could now make her way through the crowd and so she's like okay i got my healing i can feel it and then she tries to shuffle out through the crowd inconspicuous doesn't want to be noticed why because she doesn't want a rabbi and a whole crowd of Jewish people to know that an unclean woman was just in their midst. So she's secretly trying to make her way out from the crowd. In verse 30, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned to the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? She gets called out. This woman wasn't going to get away too easy, right? Jesus knew who touched his garment, don't you think? He knew and he perceived that power had gone out from him. And man, that is so deep. And I wish I could spend more time talking about what that means. But I'll just say this, is that Jesus, as I've said before, was so fully aware and so fully present. And if he knew that power had gone out from him, then he was totally aware of the power that was in him. 
And would we be a people that aware, are aware of the power that is in us? Because the same power that is in Jesus that went out to heal this woman is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and is the same power that lives inside you. He's called the Holy Spirit. And would we be so aware of his presence and of his power that we would know when that presence has gone out from us? So Jesus, being fully aware, calls this woman out who had touched him in verse 31, one of my favorite things that the disciples say, said, and his disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Don't you just love the disciples? Like, Jesus, everybody is touching you. Like, look, we're, we're in this thronging crowd. But Jesus knew that somebody had touched him. He could perceive one touch of a person who had faith among a thousand touches. See, he could distinguish one person's real faith among a thousand thronging fans. Jesus is personal and he knows when faith is present. Jesus wasn't wondering whose flesh touched him. Jesus was wondering whose faith touched him. Flesh does not please God, faith pleases God. Jesus wanted to know who in faith had touched him. And Jesus said, who touched me? And he's doing this because he's trying to draw this woman to himself and publicly announce her to be healed. He's not interested in having a secret disciple. He wanted to restore this woman completely and present her back to society. And so Jesus is asking this question to draw her out of hiding and we read in verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So this woman comes forward and she's fearful and she's trembling and she's laid out before Jesus and you know, hasn't she already received enough scorn from the public for her condition? Couldn't she have just slipped away with her healing and gone about her way knowing that she had been healed? But I believe Jesus was calling her out because it was a very strategic thing that Jesus was doing. He was making this woman known publicly. Why? He wanted to restore her to society. That's why he said, you can now live in peace. He wanted to make her known, know for certain that she had been healed. That's why Jesus said, be healed of your disease. She'd already been healed, but when Jesus says it, you know it for sure. He also told her so that he could honor her faith. He said, your faith has made you well. He also wanted to let her know that it wasn't his tassel that had healed her, but that it was her faith in Jesus, the healer, that had healed her. He didn't want her going away with some superstitious thought that it was some tassel that had healed her, but it was the one who wore that tassel. And lastly, Jesus wanted to call her daughter. Nowhere else in the Gospels do you see Jesus call a woman like this daughter. 
Think of how restorative that word was for this woman. Think of the place and the acceptance and the love and the hope that it gave her to be called daughter, that she would be connected to Jesus in a familial kind of way, which tells me something, which is that Jesus is not interested in secret disciples. Jesus is interesting, interested in people being publicly declared as sons and daughters of God. And so if you've been living your life as a secret disciple, where no one really knows that you're a Christian, no one really knows that you're a son or a daughter of God, Jesus wants to draw you today out from that discreet kind of lifestyle of your Christianity, and he wants to draw you into a public proclamation that you are a son or a daughter of God. Amen? Amen. And that is why Jesus drew her out. And perhaps today, you today need to be drawn out from this secret place of hiding where you don't want anyone to know that you're a Christian. God wants you to know, and he wants others to know that you are his son and that you are his daughter. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Did anyone forget about Jairus? I kind of do. I get so wrapped up in this woman's encounter with Jesus that I forget all about the fact that Jesus was supposed to be en route to heal Jairus' daughter. And so this messenger comes along and says, don't bother with the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. And imagine the pain and the frustration that Jairus would have felt. Come on, woman, you just hijacked Jesus from me. Jesus was supposed to come to my house to heal my daughter and you stopped him and now my daughter is dead. And so this father is filled with whatever feeling you would have at the news of the death of your daughter in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Jesus is looking at Jairus. He says, do not fear, only believe. Keep believing, Jairus. You, you believe that I would come with you. You believe that I would heal your daughter. I can still help you. You've seen how I helped this woman, how I healed this woman. Do you still believe that I have power and authority to heal? Do not fear, only believe. Keep believing, Jairus. And so these calm and authoritative words of Jesus are coming over Jairus, and then the crowd begins to move forward, or rather, the crowd gets dismissed. Verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of Jesus. And the whole way, Jairus is thinking, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And they get to the house, verse 38 to 40, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people wailing and weeping loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. To make a quick point is that these fake acting mourners. In that day, you would hire public mourners to mourn over the dead body of a, of a person. It sounds kind of weird to us, but in that ancient culture, this is what they did. And Jesus comes and said, why are you mourning? This girl is not dead. She's sleeping. And you know they're acting, right? Because they immediately go from weeping and wailing to laughing at Jesus. My favorite part about this is Jesus just says, get out. 
you know, those who act and those who laugh at Jesus will be put out and won't be able to experience the resurrection power of Jesus. He puts them out from the place and only those who do not fear and only believe get to witness the resurrection power of Jesus. He says, do not fear, only believe. This child is not dead, she is sleeping. Now Jesus knows this girl's dead, but he said that she was sleeping to say this, that death doesn't have the final say. He said sleeping because Jesus has authority over death. Death doesn't really, death is an enemy of Jesus. He's not ruled by death. So he says that she was sleeping, but yes, she was physically dead, and he was going to put this little girl back into his, her daddy's arms. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Isn't that so wonderful? You know, don't you almost forget now about the woman with the blood flow? <laughs> How these healings intersect? And you think about it, it might not have gone as either of these people planned. For the woman, maybe she'd wanted to get away more discreet. For Jairus, maybe he'd wanted to happen a little bit faster. But Jesus had a plan, and Jesus, who begins a good work, will be faithful to complete it. And so Jesus knew what he was doing. And so this woman who had suffered for 12 years of a flow of blood and this 12-year-old girl was able to live again. And why it is both 12, I have no idea, but it's really cool. (laughs) And as I end here, I just want to ask you a couple questions. And then Rob's going to lead us in a time of communion where he's going to connect this to the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And there's a beautiful and a powerful connection to that. But before we begin worship, where do you fit in this story? Who do you most resemble, I guess you could say? Let's just all be clear, none of us are Jesus. You know, (laughs) Jesus is only Jesus. We can minister like Jesus. We can be aware of the presence and the power of the Spirit like Jesus, but we're not Jesus. We point people to Jesus. Are you like Jairus, where you are normally the one who is put together, normally the one that is helping other people in their emotional, physical, and spiritual needs, but right now you're in a moment where you need Jesus to help you. Don't let your exterior of, well, I'm a ruler of the synagogue, to not let Jesus do for you what you need him to do for you. Perhaps you're like this woman who has a flow of blood, and for you, you're just kind of like an outcast of society. You kind of just feel like nobody really cares about me, nobody really knows my situation, and I just kind of move along secretly. Jesus wants to draw you out to himself, and he wants to publicly declare you today to be his son or his daughter. Perhaps you're not like any of those. Perhaps you're like the crowd, and and you've seen Jesus move for other people, but you're just kind of moving with this crowd where you see Jesus doing great things for other people, but you're like, you're just a witness. You're just watching him do other, other things for other people. Listen, there's a great difference 
between being in the midst of a crowd where Jesus is there, but he's not doing anything personal for you. That's just being in a crowd. How might you move from just being somebody in a crowd to personal connection to Jesus? Taking hold of Jesus, grabbing hold and not letting go of Jesus and what he can do for you today. So I don't know where you are. Maybe it's some other connection that you made. All I know is that I don't want to come to church and just sit in a crowd and watch other people be blessed and watch Jesus do other things for other people and not receive what Jesus wants to do for me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for today. I know that you know each individual need. I pray that you would meet it. I pray that the Spirit of God, that is the power that went out from you, would go out from you today and would minister to those who are here. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.